You're listening to Tara Lynn's A Geek Saga podcast. This episode features audio from two Red Dead Redemption panels that were recorded from the audience at Momocon 2019. technology 
as it gets more and more advanced, it, it allows the performer a lot more freedom to, uh, to do those little nuances and idiosyncratic human behaviors that we have grown to love and see in video games now. You know? So uh, I guess when you do voiceover work, it's, uh, uh, well, I, I guess a key difference would be that you had the script in front of you. You wouldn't really have that for motion capture, would you? You'd have to actually memorize your lines and be like a theater performer. Some actors were caught off guard. They would, they would show up imagining that it was not the name. The, the, the uh, prevailing presumption is, is that a video game is going to be voice work, and that was never this. I did, I would say, probably 5% of the work that I did was in the booth, and the rest of it was with other actors on the soundstage. And as Dutch, I would end up with, uh, you might have noticed he had some monologues. The first batch of pages I got after I signed this NDA, which effectively says, if you break this NDA, we will kill you, <laughs> all of your family, and everyone you went to junior high school with. Uh, but I get, I, get, I get these pages, including this monologue that is two pages long. It was huge. It was huge. And it's about, and, and you know, as an actor, typically, you got a script memorized, you get a buddy over and you run lines. I can't have a buddy over and run lines because I'm bound by this non-disclosure agreement. So I am on my own trying to put this all together. So two years into the gig, when, or three or four, when someone would show up thinking it's voiceover, and they had, I remember one guy came into the green room and he said to me, uh, how, how much do they care about these lines being, you know, perfect? And I was like, well, you know, the owner of the company wrote it, so I think <laughs> you probably want to be on off book. Uh, but watching other people struggle with my pain was enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people we have, we've worked with, I think there's close to a thousand people on that project for doing the performance capture aspect of it. And for lots of those actors, it was their first foray into the, the medium, you know, so it was really interesting. They would always do the same thing. It's when you walk into the volume, uh, you have what you what was called previs on the screen, so that you can see, for lack of a better word, your avatar within the actual environment that you're acting in. Whereas the volume would have a dimensionally accurate set, you would look on the screen, but much like that one over there. So I'm Roger Clark. We would look on that. It would be Arthur pointing, you know. And so the actors would come in and they always do the same thing. They go, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> or in some cases, when they didn't learn their lines, they're just standing like this. <laughs> did, it do did it do eyeball tracking? Yeah, the face cam would pick all that up. And even in the booth, we still did face facial capture because the animators would need to sync the lips. Would they correct that if you were, you know, forgot something and was just... <laughs> they just would, they uh, wouldn't use it, we'd just go, do it again, Roger. <laughs> <Well, laughs> that was a fun distinction between the first game and the second game, oh, yeah. was that in the first game, we, they, they didn't yet know how to cut. So if you go and you watch Red Dead, like the scene with the professor and John, and uh, that was the first one I ever did. Nostas. Not Nostas. Did you know he was Nostas too? I, don't shoot me, Mr. Marston. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was a temp track. It wasn't 
that's, that's a longer story. <laughs> but all of those scenes in the first one were, were a single take, because they couldn't edit. There's one scene where they did, like, they added a bit of dialogue, I think, when I shoot the woman in the, in the back of the head, because such a nice, nice fellow. Um, they added one, John saying, the easy Dutch was ADR, but the rest, it was all single takes. So we would have days of rehearsal with build team, the ones who would build these sets, these dimensionally accurate sets that we were on, would learn how they were going to build the sets for a given day of performance capture. And, and we, as the actors, would work with the director and each other to find out how we were going to play it. When, we, when it came time to do the second one, the engine was so well tuned and we would not, we didn't have rehearsal days of capture day. We would, we would do the scenes, we'd leave, and then the genius build team would come in and then they build a steamship or a couple of horses or a cliff or a barn or whatever they had to build. Uh, but finally we could, on the second one, you could screw up in the middle of the take and not throw out the whole take, which was a relief. There was a difference. Yeah, I would imagine it's hard to do cuts when you're doing motion capture because you, it's not exactly that you, you just have room tone for somebody's body. Right. <laughs> Well, they, they figured it, but it was, there was, when we did the scene on the cliff, spoiler alert, <laughs> uh, on, on the first red day, we did the scene on the cliff, and so we got these helmets on, and at this point, there was a version of it in the, in the, in the new one, but in the, when we were doing the first one, everybody would have their little uh, monitors with their faces on it, but there was the sort of the close-up the camera was getting, and they'd stay along even when we were going to have breaks. It's no uh, secret that, that uh, Rob Weedoff is a smoker. I was too at the time. So we'd be off on our smoke breaks and the camera would still be on and you could see the people outside. <laughs> but we were doing the scene on the cliff with our time has passed and our director Rod Edge uh, was there he, when Dutch throws the gun off the cliff. Uh, Rod caught it. And if he didn't like the take, because we couldn't do multiple, we couldn't edit, he would stop the tape before we'd get to me falling off the cliff because there was a big knob in the back of my head. Do you know this story? Yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> but there was this big knob in the back of my head and I could only hit the mat so many times before I was going to become a prima donna and storm off the set. So uh, <laughs> we, uh, we had a tape where it's me and Rob and we're doing the scene and I'm on the edge of the cliff and I'm wearing cowboy boots and there's a little lip, it's about a foot off the ground, there's a crash mat behind it. And I'm saying, uh, you know, when I'm gone, they'll find another monster. And, uh, and then my, my boot clipped on the edge of the cliff, and I'm starting to fall backwards. And I go, my time's passed! <laughs> <laughs> I fell off the bed. <laughs> and Rod was so sincere, he was like, did you mean to Crazy person. I said, no, of course I didn't mean to do that. And I said, but I really love to have been able to see the expression on my face. And Rob goes with a twinkle in his eye, oh, we can do that. <laughs> so they put it up on the big screen. We're going, oh, God. <laughs> well, you mentioned you'd already done, you had done uh, Noctis in the first one as well as. Uh... Well, Noctis is my, is 6'6. Six, six. I'm 6'6. Six, six. Dutch is 6 feet. So the idea was, was that I was just going to do Gnostis as uh, 
it's effect, effectively I was just a body double. And, but I, you know, I'm an actor, so I, I treated it like that it was my role, even though I knew it wasn't. And they ended up liking the work. It, it was the thing that I was really, I think, among the things I'm most proud of in my career was a few internet postings back then that said, how can the company that hired that actor who was so good playing Dutch Vanderlyn hire that terrible actor who played the Native American robot?
sounds like it's a rather involved process, considering the just the scale of it. Yeah, I uh, I auditioned for the, in the beginning of 2013, and my first day on the job was August of 2013, and my last day on the job was August of 2018. That's some time. I did, I found out around the, I got the, the call saying. There one of no my days for an untitled I knew what the hell it was, but, <laughs> but I, so I knew about that in July thirteen. I signed the NDA October thirteen. My first day on set was January fourteen. But I like to not just pitch other things that I did, although see Ant-Man and the Lost Development experiment. But in the time it took to do Red Dead, I shot a film in South America, it got cut, it got uh, premiered, it made it to home video, and then I shot a Marvel movie. That got cut, that got premiered, that got home video, and I still couldn't talk about the fact that I've been working on Red Dead for nearly five years. You know, so it's, it's a lot of time. Yeah. But it was well spent. I mean, well spent. There's not a thing to complain about. Yeah, I think I a few dozen hours in a can eventually is what we got. It's comparable to maybe five or six seasons of a TV show, the amount of work that went in writing and, and, and recording that went in. Five or six seasons of a TV show that you're not allowed to talk about. Yeah. It doesn't go on TV. And that nobody has seen. Yeah. yeah. So with a project that big and that long, were there any, were there, I'm sure the characters maybe gone through a bit of a metamorphosis, uh, but it's all going to be in one game. Did you have to do any reshoots? Did the characters develop quirks or habits that you later went back and added into the earlier scenes and shots? You know, I think they approached the project at the beginning. They had a kind of skeletal image of what it was going to be, but they didn't make any very fine, you know, very fine and detailed commitments early on because they knew that they were going to be molding and adapting depending on the actors and seeing how what things worked and what things didn't so yeah there were a few tweaks you know um, i had to change a fair bit because uh at the beginning arthur was very angry he was much much more angry than what he eventually turned out to be so we were able to tweak that a little bit i know that they spent ages trying to find the right fit for charles smith which they eventually did it would be amazing to share to allow uh, yeah, yes. So there was always a constant evolution of characters and whatnot, but you know, obviously we had to be keep in mind the consistency as well. And for the consistency as a playable character is a bit of a double-edged sword too, because you know I am my actions are as morally ambiguous as what the player decides to do with me. You know, so it's up to you, whether or not Arthur is loyal, a dishonorable guy, or an honorable guy, you know? So, uh, what I, my biggest challenge, especially for the latter half of the story, would be come up with lines as truthful and as honestly as I could that would suit both an honorable path and a dishonorable path. And of course, the, the amazing writing by Dan Hauser and Rupert Humphreys, uh, thank you, and Michael Unsworth, that helped that. Great deal, but you know when you when you know you're the playable character, that was one of the challenges I had to face. 
is also that because of the tech, you know, I ended up, a lot of the time, I'd have a big speech. All the time I'd have a big speech. <laughs> at the end of the speech, I'd say, you two go up and do that, and you two go up and do that. Or, and you can go with them, or you can go with them. And then, five months later, they'd be playing through and they'd be figuring out, oh, you know what, we gotta send two different people over there and two different people over there. So, you re-record the dialogue for that. So now it's Mr. Pearson is waiting for you over there, and uh, Mr. Bell's waiting for you over there. Okay, all right. And then, and then they change it again. But the, 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 the thing that ended up happening is that there are some scenes in there. Um, I can think of a couple of things that took forever to get it. Just so. But they feel, all of the scenes feel so immediate, like they just happened. And that's a tribute to the writing, to the animating. But because of the technology, there are scenes in there where there is performance capture that we did in 2014, booth work that we did in 2015, additional performance capture that we did in 2017. And by the way, the actor playing that role got replaced. And so it's a whole, so there's this sort of Frankenstein of these scenes into what we ended up with. Yeah. It, it was amazing to be a, a participant in that process. In 2018, I was finishing scenes that I had started in 2013. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it would be almost like uh, if you were working on some sort of TV production, going back and reshooting season one shots. Yeah, the <laughs> continuity nightmare that that would cause in live action. Can you imagine? <laughs> What if your actor got fat? <laughs> <laughs> and lost his hair. Wait, what are we talking about? He's <laughs> got loads more gray hair now. What do we do? Uh, were, were there any, uh, with a long production like this, were, were there any uh, actors that you had, that they had gotten for a part, were perfect for it, but then they had scheduled conflicts later on and they had to be replaced? Where should yeah, I? Yeah. Um, John O'Craig, uh, who was the second uncle, uh, Spider Madison. Spider Madison played him in the original. And uh, so we had a wonderful John O'Craig who played Arthur, and unfortunately he passed away halfway through the shoot, and then he was replaced by the amazing James Matt, James McBride, who uh, you know, had, to, had to do the Herculean task of ADR and all of John's lines, but thankfully your rock star did keep, whenever you hear Uncle singing, it's still John O'Craig, so, yeah. And they made part of the map, O'Craig's Run, who's named after our compatriot John, that we all miss terribly. rest in peace, So yeah, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that. Well, uh, I noticed that you guys had come down here from, uh, from uh, Motor City Con. So, doing some research for this uh, for this panel, I noticed that uh, you had been to Kuwait uh, earlier in the year. So what's it like traveling uh, to American cons versus like foreign American cons? I mean, I know it's a little different, uh, you know, I know you're from Boston. Uh, uh, Kuwait and Detroit are exactly the same. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I know you're from Boston and you're well, I am from Boston. not.
we're still kind of new to this, you know. And, and it, what's been really amazing is when we said to meet you guys, and we find out how many of, for you, it's your first con as well, you know. And it just means so much to us that, that you took the time to come out and attend the con for the first time because you liked our work and you liked the game. So that's amazing. But the support, the fans haven't been, they're, they're kind of the same all, no matter where you go in the world, you know. That was the overwhelming thing to me about the Quake was to go to a place I, I never imagined that I would, I would go, but I was very happy to. Um, but you're meeting folks in cosplay literally on the other side of the world, and you start to recognize that because of our association with Rockstar and what they have achieved as a company over all of these years, that we get to intersect in popular culture in a, in a manner that is literally global. And at a time, I figure, when, when there's a lot of friction in this world, to be participating in a story that is uh, connecting with people all over the planet, literally, uh, it's humbling is not a sufficient word. Imagine that you'd be, be visiting all these sort of things, or did did you picture yourself? Uh, I guess what I want to ask is, what were you really doing before getting into this? Right, um, is this uh, kind of your main gig that you started, or uh, as a, as an actor? You mean? I, I guess acting in general. Like, uh, well, I I got my degree from NYU uh, in '96 and spent a lot of time working very hard for no money in downtown theater in New York in the 90s. And then I moved out to Los Angeles in 99 because I heard they needed another actor. And <laughs> I thought I could help. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, my bread and butter's been pretty much TV, big guy number two, I'm your man, uh, large Russian. Uh, you know, I'd often be the guy that you think is, he's the killer, and then I'm not the killer. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hell of a thing, and a wonderful thing, to be a, a, a character actor, a, a, a journeyman actor. Uh, and you, you know, the sort of natural state as an actor is, is unemployed. So you're, you're, you're basically treading water. So for all you kids who are really excited about the possibility, just know you're spending most of the time treading water. And then every once in a while, a little boat will come along, and that's the part. And sometimes the part's going to be like a little dinghy, and you get in the dinghy, and you're there, and back in the water, treading water. And then every once in a while, something like Red Dead comes along. And that's, it's like a giant yacht, and you're happy to stay on it for as long as you can, but eventually you're going back in the water, and that's just the, 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 the nature of things. But it's not as though, and I can't speak for Roger, but I expect him, he's going to agree. It's not like I woke up one morning and went, you know what, I think a cowboy video game is <laughs> exactly what I need. <laughs> Uh, but in, uh, my first professional gig was in 2000, and uh, I trained in Britain, and I started out doing theater and voiceover. Uh, I've done theater all over the world, um, a lot of Shakespeare, a lot of Arthur Miller, etc. My first voiceover gig was for a slot machine called
called Reservoir Frogs. <laughs> take off Reservoir Dogs. No. So, and they wanted a Michael Madsen sound like, you know, and I saw I would just go, Jerry's Bananas. <laughs> Depending, of course, which fruit appeared. <laughs> so that was my first story. <laughs> Frogs don't have ears, but so it's a frog holding a human ear and a gun. And sliding. Oh, God, I just did, you know. What was this going on in your head? Did your favor kind of that off? Yeah, but Ben's absolutely right, you know. Um, you know, anyone who's been at it long enough knows that uh, any, any work is a blessing, you know, and, and the joy is in the doing. But uh, this is beyond our wildest dreams because we never thought that we would get so much joy seeing how our work was received, too. You know? oh, so uh, I did have a question that's uh, a little more, it's a little ambiguous, at least with, uh, with this game, considering that you have the ability to make the moral choices as a player for your, for your character. Uh, were there any decisions that you saw your character, you depicted your character today, that you either admired or kind of disdained? Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You I know, guess you had to do both. <laughs> you know, I knew that, you know, the, it's, it's un unlike any other medium, you know, playing as Arthur, I knew that I had even less ownership of the character than I would do if it was a play or if it was a television series. And, and I knew that the player was going to have an equal entitlement of ownership to Arthur as I did. So I guess going back to one of my earlier answers, you know, one of my main duties that I perceived to be anyway was to come up with enough ambiguity so that it would work regardless of how the player behaved as him but yet still had come up with something that was still definitively a clear character, you know? So I guess one of the ways that I justified that to myself was to remind myself that people are complicated, you know? And we contradict ourselves all the time. And as long as it's done in a way that uh, justifies the motivation of the character, whether it be you know, Arthur is in a gang and he does nasty stuff, and but he does it out of a sense of loyalty and duty to his gang and loved ones. So I just always would remind myself of the complexity of the human spirit, if you, for lack of a better term. You know, and and any time I felt Arthur wouldn't do that, I considered it my job to find out a way in which he truthfully would. You know, I had to come up with the motivation to make it work, to make it seem real. Ah, okay. uh, Dutch didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so many airspace, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I wasn't going to die. 
which is kind of great. Like it, it allowed me to do certain things, and they had my back on them. Like you don't see Dutch crouching very often. He doesn't go into low cover very often. People start shooting at me, just walk. Which I really thought was pretty badass. But it was this interesting thing that we sort of, we, it seemed to me in the, in, the, in, the, in the production of it that we really got the payday of the gang set before they started throwing the crazy stuff at, at me. And crazy is the wrong word for Dutch. Trouble, I guess, is maybe closer. But so it was, it was a bit of a, uh, uh, it wasn't, um, it wasn't that it was hard to do, but when you're showing up for three months, or four months, and working as like this great leader who is there with all the answers for everybody, and you go from that to a guy that is uncertain of himself, and he's making terrible decisions that are injuring people that I've been caring about in a real profound way. It was, it was an interesting uh, journey, to say the least. And I, remember as well as I think anybody that's played it, but the scene with the, the final scene with Micah and Arthur and Dutch on the cliff. And knowing how, like, as, as an actor, you want to have a great moment of redemption, for lack of a better word. But instead, I have to go and I gotta step on this hand. And I've gotta walk, you know, and we're all, again, this is performance capture, so I'm sitting there and I'm watching Roger at the top of his game wheezing and coughing and, and, I, and I'm the guy that's got to go walk over and step on his hand. Um, it did not make me feel good. So there, are, there were certainly uh, decisions. I do like to think that in the work I was given the room, and, and not just the room, Rod, our director, and, and our writers encouraged the ambiguity of Dutch so that one person can walk away and they can say that Dutch was just a bad man. And I think another person can walk away, hopefully, and say, Dutch was confused, or Dutch was led astray, or Dutch was o over his head, or overextended, or what have you. I like that there's room in there for interpretation. Well, I know that uh, uh, as the playable character, you had to go through many branches of like, okay, if, this, if the character went this way and that way. But uh, I guess as Dutch, you would still have to all right, if the, if the main character went this way, how would Dutch, no, we need a Dutch, Dutch's reaction to when he did this, when he did this. So there was a, I guess, did you have to, was it, was it, was it trouble to keep, keep all that in your head of like which, which version of uh, Arthur you're, you're dealing with? Not, well, not so much. The, the one thing that I, I remember, I can be cantankerous. <laughs> <laughs> but of, of, of the things that I, I got uh, in a snit about was having to record this dialogue of if Arthur was treating me disrespectfully at camp. And I was just like, that would not happen. <laughs> I would not allow it. <laughs> he would not survive it. <laughs> but we had to, you know, they, they would explain to me that it's not all, you know, the, the character has some agency, the player is allowed to fuck with you, pardon my friends. <laughs> okay, all right, so begrudgingly. Throw dynamite at you. <laughs> <laughs> Who does that? Nobody does that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Honest. 
Mr. Morris. Was it was it any trouble picking up the character after the first read? It was scary. I'll, I'll tell you, it was getting the Red Dead Redemption is pretty good. I mean, it's a remarkable. Yeah. And, and again, I'm I'm proud of every every role. Big guy number two. Like I said, I am your guy. I swear, go find off center. Look at that. I'm proud about that. Proud of work. But but to have been a part of Red Dead Redemption, to have done that, uh, it felt like I was I was justifiably proud to be a part of that. And I was so excited when the call came that we were going to go do it again. But then I started thinking. What if we screw this up? What if this thing that I'm so unabashed? What if the new guy screws it up? What if yeah? <laughs> what if what if they get another guy in and he screws it up? Although I, you know, if you work with Roger, we talked about that before. We we ended up. You don't often get to to have a, a union as, as an artist with another artist, and and we were. I mean, every important scene that I did, I did alongside this man over here. He did not screw it up. I don't think. Does anybody think that Roger screwed up? Hell no. I hadn't met him yet. And I was worried. And I remember showing up for the first day of the sequel, or the prequel, and really sincerely going up to Rod Edge and saying, what if we screw this up? And Rod told me to trust him. And every time I've trusted that man, things have gone well for me. So, um, that was, but it was still, when we would butt up against, like, I expect all of you to play the scene where he and I are on the cliff being chased by the army. I saw those sides, and I was like, no, 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 It's too close, it's too cute by half. I was afraid that it was gonna step on. And I was, I had, I had doubts, which is what- Because they're the same lines as you all know, right? It, it, it's echoes. But then when I, I, I actually, I, the day I did it, um, I still wasn't quite sold, but again, I trusted everybody that I was with. It was a couple of weeks later, and so what will happen with some of those scenes is that there'll be multiple passes of those scenes. So we did the scene, uh, Roger and I, in character, and then there were maybe four people that were playing the army that we were dealing with on the cliff about a session or two later, so this maybe three months later, they're doing pickups for that scene so that the rest of the army is there. And the way they do that is the, the, the original scene is played again, and more actors, sometimes even the same actors, will be in different positions throughout the, and I- The original positions are marked out so you make sure you don't stand in the same place as another soldier, basically. And it was one of those days where I, I was wrapped early. And when you get wrapped early, you take off your leotard, thankfully. <laughs> you know, you get back in your civilian clothes. But once you're back in your civilian clothes, you, you're free to move about the volume. You, if you're in your docks, you can't go on the volume because you'll screw everything up. Because the, the machine will know you're there. But once I was out, I went in and I watched the scene happen again. 
and I saw what Rodney put together of our work, and I finally was like, okay, actually, not only did I think that that works, I think all of a sudden not only was it a great thing to do, what it does to to amplify that scene at the end with Rob, with Rob rather on the cliff, is now all of a sudden Dutch at the end is remembering his friend who he failed so terribly. Well, I think we're going to go ahead and start uh, start the audience questions, so you can start lining up. Remember, one question. Make sure it's an actual question. If you have two, you can ask one and then go to the end. And uh, while that's getting set up, uh, uh, I promised myself I wouldn't ask you guys for a line, but could you just do Lenny one time? Lenny! <laughs> <laughs> Good question. 
The, uh, the revelation about Arthur's sickness really reframes and asks new things of the player in the final act of the game. So for both of you, thematically, what did that final act mean to you, or what do you learn, or what do you take from that unique journey of sort of the game's swan song? Well, obviously there's, there's, uh, there's echoes of Doc Holliday and that uh, certain diagnosis, you know, which is uh, a well-known feature in many Westerns. But for me, I think uh, that's the beginning of the path of redemption because it changes Arthur's perception on his own life and on his own mortality when he's finally faced fate, you know, when he's confronted face-to-face -face with his own death. It makes him change the way he views his life and the effect that it's had on others. So for me, it was main, main focus point. It was like center, the center of the whole story, at least Arthur's story. Because I don't think he would have had the same moral journey if, uh, if he knew that death wasn't suddenly looming over his shoulder like that. Were you aware of that while, while uh, production was going on? Kind of like a... Uh, the scene with Thomas Downs was one of the first I did. And uh, it was very specific on the page. Thomas Downs coughs into Arthur's face. Oh, I think I'm right. <laughs> and then I did what many other people did. I googled when the cure for tuberculosis was discovered. <laughs> then I was like, okay, now I know why Arthur Morgan is mentioned in the previous red <laughs> uh, I love the game. I think you guys were perfect casting for your role. Congratulations to the Good Game Awards. Um, I know you guys have kind of like, you know, made a big deal and also reclaim your lives back, but I just wanted to ask, are there any future roles or sort of things we'll see you guys in? Maybe we'll see Santa Monica? Or, and I'll, I'll pay for a Dutch man with Google Maps voice, literally. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I just wanted to say, you just have to see yourself with the boards. Dutch would steer you wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Like I said earlier, you know, I'm back in the in the in the water trip. Um, I'm hopeful. I had a lot of fun actually. The last time I was in Atlanta, Georgia, it was with Peyton Reed, who directed Ant Man and the Wasp, um, and that was a lot of fun. Filmed on location here. We, we, I, I stayed in a wonderful place called Peachtree City for about uh, two weeks. And it was at Pinewood Studios where it was it was shot. And near as I figured, even if Thanos, Thanos, Thanos snapped Aiken Burley out of existence, he's back now. So my hope is that I get to run around and bubble through the Marvel Universe again. But I don't know if that's going to happen or not. But uh, it, it's been my experience throughout my career that, that work tends to beget work. So I like my chances. I've got a game coming out. We're starting working on it later this year. It's, it's, it's a nice, really cool children's story called Lunafon. It's from Thrike House in Wales. Uh, Jack Septic guy is going to be a part of it, along with Brian Deckard from Detroit Become Human. That's lovely wife Amelia. We all we're all doing, and that is just voice. We're just doing the voice on that one, but it's going to be awesome. And uh, hopefully, check it out next year. Lunafon. This is a question for Mr. Davis. Uh, who set more of the pace for Dutch's ascent into madness and kind of like a quip? What are your general thoughts on being able to play a character who you already have lost in Red Dead Redemption 1, 
being able to play as a sentence to madness in a prequel? Well, I'll answer the second part first. I feel blessed, just blessed, so lucky, but honestly a dream come true. In terms of the descent into madness, there was uh, the scene um, where poor Kieran comes back to camp, not entirely intact. Um, we shoot, we shot that scene, and then we and then we finished the firefight. And at the end of the firefight, Dutch recognizes that he got played by a Driscoll of all people. Um, and. I had a moment, I, I remember walking next to, to Callie and like, I, I started banging on whatever the thing was, it was a, a wagon or something, and I'm banging on it, and I'm like, uh, stuttering and stammering, and I'm, you know, freaking out, and Rod, the director, comes over and he says, if, 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 he's, if he's that crazy now, <laughs> he will never make it to the first game. <laughs> so I got, I, I had, it's a tough thing playing a leader because a lot of what, uh, a lot of your authority isn't demonstrated by you, it's demonstrated by the people that are around you. Um, and so I had to have a lot of, forgive the term, but I had to have a lot of faith in the people that I was working with. Um, in terms of the descent into madness, it was, there was no one that I had that was more um, uh, essential to that arc than Rod Edge, our director. And, and his contribution, contribution, working with him, remains one of the great honors in my, my career. Thank you. Thank you. And call me Ben. Howdy. Howdy. <laughs> that is appropriate, yeah. Um, some of the most memorable scenes from the Red Dead series uh, involve music and playing in the background. Do either of you have a favorite piece of music from the series? We're waiting for the album to come out. <laughs> so, so much it was good. I love that Willie Nelson song when you play it as John. That's fantastic. And of course, that final ride. Going back to camp to confront Micah. Beautiful song. Also the one when you're making your way back to the Kay after Guarma uh, by D'Angelo. The music on it is amazing. The work by, done by Woody Jackson absolutely blew us away. There's an interesting, I, I, I'm, I'm certain in fact you can find it on Vimeo, but there's a short film that I made with some friends in about 2005 in Arizona called Black Eyed Sue. And I had to learn a song for that. Um, and I ended up using that song because I learned how to do it in this particular, the, the dialect and the kind of the wheezy, cracky, breaky sort of voice that I use for Dutch, I developed on for this character, Osborne Crawl. And then when I auditioned, I used that because I figured it sounded pretty good. And I got the part so, it sounded pretty good. Um, <laughs> but when I was trying to get back on model, you were asking this earlier, with the character voice when I was returning after all that time, that song that I sang in that thing, which I think was called How Come That Blood on Your Coat Sleeve, um, which was an old song. But also, the song we had to learn. Yeah, <laughs> no, when we go fishing with When we go fishing, that was after, great. After rescuing Trelawney, that was towards the end of the, the whole contract. That was great. 
threw on the floor and I knocked off some really, really wholesome stuff. <laughs> and the campfire stuff too, like when you bring Jack back after finally getting him from Bronte and that wonderful song that Gabriel Sawyer, who plays Javier, put in. You know, and it's not easy to play guitar with those balls on your fingers. <laughs> do, we, do you play musical instruments? I would play harmonica, but they didn't ask for Dutch to play harmonica. I think they should have. <laughs> hey, thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you. Oh, my. I was uh, wondering, uh, were you guys releasing uh, future content, like maybe another Under Nightmare or something similar like that? <laughs> Even if I knew, I wouldn't tell you about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny you bring that up. <laughs> You know, we don't want to spoil it for the fans. That, that sounds like we don't know shit. <laughs> Who are your favorite characters aside from Arthur, Dutch, or John? John Lee. <laughs> Sadie's awesome. I love all of them. I like Charles Smith. Oh, yeah. He's pretty cool. Yeah. He's, uh, he's kind of torn, you know, he comes from two different worlds, and he's not accepted in either. I, uh, Charles Smith really does it for me. Uh, beyond those, the, the, those who you named, for me, the essential uh, performers that were really critical to my art were Penny O'Brien, who played Molly O'Shea, and uh, Curzon Dovell, who played Jose Matthews. It was a, a surprise over the course of uh, putting the game together and figuring out what the story was to, to learn just how critical Hosea was to the whole game. That, that Dutch couldn't, Dutch alone, we see what that yields, but Dutch with Hosea, you know, was a whole different ball game. All right, so this is a question for you, Roger. Um, you kind of had to be the, like, I mean, well, your, your predecessor, you know. <laughs> John Marston's awesome, right? Yeah. Big shoes to say. Yeah. What was that like when you found that? I was a little overwhelmed, to be honest, because I played the first, the previous game twice before I even knew I was going to be part of the second one. And uh, yeah, I, I probably told some of you already. It was the one game that my wife really enjoyed watching. <laughs> she liked the horses and the scenery is beautiful and, and um, yeah, once I found out that I was going to be the playable character on the second night that I was like, how am I going to, the people love John Marston. I, I, I kind of realized early on that trying to recreate what Rob Weedoff did would be an exercise in futility. I really had to do my own thing. And then I remember the first day he came and it was one of spoilers, but I assume most of you would have gotten to this point, was when you rescue them from the wolves. And then I looked at my pages and I had to talk trash to them. Rob Weedoff is such a gracious gentleman and such a wonderful colleague and partner in the scene that, you know, that quickly evaporated. But then I had to lift the guy up, you know? He's not right. <laughs> Okay, um, we're going to return to the horse thing. Okay. Uh, okay, so uh, Ben, for playing Dutch now, for the first game, he's pretty good. 
pretty much obviously a, a just a rude dude. You know? <laughs> well, I, I, I should love you. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> What is it? I, mean, I feel like in um, Red Dead Redemption 2, there's a lot more fleshing out of this character, a lot more depth added. Uh, when you got the script, um, as it was unfolding to you, what like what was that like? How did you feel or to learn more about your character? Well, I was I was, I was so excited to be returning the character. Yeah. I hoped to, I nursed a, a, a faint hope that it was going to happen. Um, and the success of the first game, I thought, yeah, okay, this might happen. But when they called, I still didn't really know um, what to expect. <laughs> the first Red Dead, as a job, was maybe three months' work. Within that three months, really, I think it was three rehearsal days, three capture days, and one day in the booth. That was stuff. Yeah. And Nazis. Um, and so when I heard I was coming back, and this time we weren't working in California, we were working in uh, New York State, um, I, I hoped we were going to hear a lot of the story, but I really didn't know. You know, what I saw here is, you might have heard Brad Secret, um, they have to be, I mean, the storytellers, and their stories have great uh, turns and twists and whatnot. Um, so I really didn't know when I got the call that this was going to be three months of work, or if it was going to be a year of work. And then after a year gone by, is it going to be another year? And then after, it, it, it grew and grew and grew uh, as we were doing it. We really didn't know, we didn't know the first trailer was going to drop, we didn't know much of anything. Um, so, returning to the character was a bit of a mystery in terms of what the work itself was going to be. But as an actor, it was a, certainly a much more robust sort of approach to this guy. Oh. It was really something as we, we started to meet all of the things, you know, one by one, we started to realize that these are the people we're going to be working with and sharing a secret with for what ended up being five years. And now I can go on and put the, the, the game on, and I can go walk through camp. I hear everybody's voices, and it's like being in the green room on a busy day at the capture studio. It's really uh, surreal, it's not as good. Yeah. Because of our NDA, we, we had no one else to talk to about the work except each other. We ended up building a stronger relationship with each other as our characters did in the gang, you know, so I and then we started betraying each other. <laughs> <laughs>
and, and, and Peter Blomquist, who plays I started rolling that around in my head. 
I was like, okay, so the player is going to be attached to it, you know. And, and then when we started doing cutscenes as well, which would be skipped if the player didn't have a level four bonding with their horse. When I started to realize that the, that, that stack in the game was actually going to affect the narrative, and it would, it would depend whether or not the cutscene would actually play, then I started to appreciate what the relationship might be. And uh, so a lot of the horse stuff was actually, going back to voice acting and performance capture, a lot of the horse stuff was actually voice acting. I think it was about two days in the booth doing that stuff. And, you know, is Arthur's horse a mare or is it a stallion? And, and then there's different dialogue if you have a level four bonding, then if you have a level one bonding, you know, you're not quite as affectionate, etc. So we did that. And a couple of weeks later, I come back in, and our wonderful, one of our wonderful assistant directors, Captain Aldous, he says, Raj, we gotta do those horse lines again. I was like, why? He said, well, a little too intimate, man. It sounds like we're not talking to a horse. <laughs> he played it back, and I was like, you're all right, girl. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
it is remarkable to me. I mean, it just it feels like a real world. We're still discovering stuff. I sat on panels. I said, you know, I did this thing where they got cut. And then on my second playthrough, I'm like, oh shit, don't touch my back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just hadn't seen it. I, I missed it the first time. They really took a village. There were a couple of thousand people who worked on this. And that's not even counting the actors, which there was a cast of almost a thousand people. you were making gear. Well, I I only played the first one. I wasn't a part of it, you know. But I um, I had taken a big hiatus from gaming after I graduated college, and uh, then I, I got an Xbox 360, and uh, I said to the guy at GameStop, I said I like open world stuff. And he says, all right, well then you want this, and then you want that. And it was Skyrim. Yeah, he did me good with those two <laughs> Especially considering what went on to happen, you know. But my wife loved watching it, and, you know, a huge fan of the Western genre. And again, as, as just to underline what Ben said, all the little tiny references that you get while you're playing Red Dead of, of amazing Westerns in the past whether you're talking the spaghetti western genre or John Ford and Howard Hawks a little earlier on, all these little nods and Easter eggs that you wouldn't know unless you're a huge fan. Just, you know that the people who created this have a love of westerns and a huge commitment to the genre. And they're literally transforming this from one medium to another. But in doing so, still acknowledging and respecting the cinematic western. It was so cool to, to see that. Yeah. So I loved it. And then being in the second one is the dream come true. Yeah. Um, okay, so if you could uh, switch roles with anybody. Um, <laughs> Why the hell would I want to do that? I said it was like. Amazing how over time it became really second nature. 
But you, you, we went on a three week shoot. I just started bringing up people with ping pong balls all over me. A lot of the new actors would always do the same thing. So they'd come into the volume, which would be a room about this size, and there'd be a big screen up there too where you'd see yourself in the game. And they'd always go, oh wow, this is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> they always do the same thing. So, of course, you have to share if you can't pick your own character, of course, who your favorite character is. Even if it's from the first one, everyone has favorite characters. I like the guy looking for Gavin. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we thought they might have done it that way. 
first teaser drops, and they bring us on the volume, just, we got to see it, this was one first. We got to see that first teaser, that beautiful, beautiful sort of tone poem. You see Arthur walking out from the sun on the horizon, and it has that great line you do about it. You better run it on the back. Exactly. So that one drops, and we see they were watching it with the entire production company on this big screen, watching it and loving it. Oh my God, this is so mean. Look at this thing, and then it gets to him, he goes, Red Dead Redemption 2. <laughs> 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 and everybody else is like, yeah, I am such a fan <laughs> So I go to our producer, Michelle, and I say, you have to let me tell my neck. You have to tell me. That'd be good. Now keep the secret. You gotta let me tell so that bad. You were right. Oh, man. Right there, that's your turn. Thank you. 
to work with. And I remember when she came over and we we crunched out the first mission with her. They, I think they liked it so much that they did they did two more. It was just a joy to work to do that because we've all been in that position, heaven we you know, in an old flame, and you know, you see them again. It's all this whirlwind of emotion. Just keep it brother. But it's starting to get cut 
it got cut. But I think there's an underlying tone that there remained when, you know, when they suggested that to both me and, and Callie Moore, who was doing an amazing job of getting out of there, the second one, that uh, there was this underlying tone of, I know you fancy me, you know I'm John. Well, it's something that kind of ebbed away as the years went by, but it's always, yeah, I'm glad to. It's interesting that you picked up on it. Yeah, you, you didn't imagine it. I put it that way. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, man. So I think we all agree that Red Dead Redemption is a great Western game, but Red Dead Redemption is a great Western. So in that same vein, what's your favorite Western, and is that helping find the character? Uh, well, I love Clint Eastwood, but to be honest, the man with no name is very stoic. Um, and, uh, you know, Arthur talks a little bit more than that. Um, the Good, the Bad, the Ugly, I think, is God, it's probably my favorite Western. Woo! I don't see any Western genre, but uh, I remember asking uh, the Rockstar crew, you know, what, have you got any recommendations? And they recommended the proposition, which is actually set in Australia, but for all intents and purposes, it is a Western, you know. And, Guy Pierce has to confront his sense of loyalty to his brother, and then Ray Winston forces him to betray him. So, which I turned out becoming quite a major theme in our game too. Uh, but Toshiro Mifune, who uh, was he, he was the lead in a lot of Kurosawa movies, and he was the samurai and Yojimbo and Sanjuro, which went on to become Fistful of Dollars and he was a huge influence in my work on Arthur because, you know, just with his presence, and, you know, he had a lot of range. He could be very focused and intense, and at times, though, he had a great sense of humor, too. So I, I based a lot of my stuff on the show. I, I spent a lot of time watching Man Who Shot with Rebalance. Uh, I love that film. I'm also quite fond of Unforgiven.
still be played. That's when the But we were all there, singing along for a day. But it was it was amazing. They actually told some of the girls, "You're singing too good." <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. I mean, it's, it's, it's there. I mean, that's us. So you go, you go and you sit down and you watch that. That's all of us right there, as we were on that day. And thanks to Raksha, that memory is preserved for ever. It's just a part. Uh, yeah. Okay. So 
Once we realized that, we know it was a bit of a Wakanda situation, so that we had a bit of license. And of course, these guys are traveling all over the, the territories, you know, so speaking from personal experience, you, uh, you, your accent does get a little mumbled and jargled with wherever you're living at the time. You know? So we went, consistency was more important than accuracy, I think. Always is. All right, thank you. Screaming at me. Has Micah come with him? 
stood there as the scene continued to play out without me, and I just cried my eyes out. And I think three or four days. And I even told Rod, he might be able to use some of that. <laughs> I don't think he used it. Um, but it was, uh, it was really hard. And that happened here, chronologically, not quite at the end of our process, but we had been working together for so long. At least for you. And, 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 and Peter, Roger, and I, for a large section of our work, were kind of the three of us. And so that was, in terms of your question about how you find the emotion for that, this was, in many ways, the bulk of our lives for five years. And we were only in it together. So even now, just talking doesn't take much for my heart to break thinking about how our story ended. Thank you. Thank you.